I grew up going to the Detroit Zoo. Anybody ever been to the Detroit Zoo? I've been to a bunch of zoos all over the country. How about the Cleveland Zoo? All right, you, who's been to the San Diego Zoo? Uh, what other zoos? Oh, the Roger Williams Zoo, I'm sure, other than my kids, that's in Rhode Island. Um, who's been uh, to the Phoenix Zoo? Have we all been to the Phoenix Zoo? Who's been to Out of Africa? Every zoo I've ever been to, there's, there are some exhibits I don't really care to see. But I'll tell you one exhibit I never miss. It's the lion exhibit. This is from out of Africa. I would dare say in all the zoos I've ever been to, the first picture is what you typically see at the zoo. You see a lion sleeping, taking a nap. It's usually too warm or whatever. But this is, this is the most active uh, I think we've ever seen lions um, and tigers at, at, out of Africa. And this lady was getting ready to, to feed them. I guess that if we could somehow remove the lions from their cage and put them out, you know, back in the safari somewhere, back out there where they had to go out there and catch their food, that it might unleash some of their ferocity, right? When you think of a roaring lion, it's kind of a scary thing. I mean, there's that fence between you, like the fence in the picture here. You got that fence. There's, sometimes there's glass or whatever, right, kind of keeping you safe. But I would be a little freaked out if I were out on an African safari and I turned around and there was a roaring lion standing there, wouldn't you? There's something fear-inducing about this lion that is roaring, that, that is ferocious. Well, as we begin the study of this Old Testament book of Amos tonight, this is the portrait that Amos begins with, a roaring Lion, follow along as I read. This is Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa. What he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. Amos says, the Lord roars from Zion. Now, roar here, in English and in the Hebrew, we're not talking about a purr. We're not talking about a kitty cat purr. This signifies a loud, deep, the rumbling cry of of a lion. And Amos uses this metaphor in his introduction, and it presents this picture of God that that I think few people actually have of God. But one that I believe that Amos wants to get the attention of his hearers, now of his readers. See, God wanted to get the people's attention. He wanted to get the attention of the people of Israel. He wanted to get the attention of, of the nations, but this mess, in the, these messages in the book of Amos, man, he was trying to get the attention of his people. And you'd think that they could hear a lion roar and know that danger was at hand. But it didn't even bring the people to their knees. They were too comfortable. They were, felt too secure. So nobody was listening. Well, there was at least one guy listening. 
and his name is Amos. So tonight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the prophet, then we're going to look at the pronouncements that, that the prophet delivers, the messages that, that, the, that uh, Amos first delivers here. There's several of them as we go through the book. And then after the pronouncements, we're going to see two principles that, that Amos gives us here in the early part of chapter 3. So let's look at the prophet first. The prophet first. And simply the truth that we're talking about here as we think about the prophet is that God wants to make his voice heard. God wanted the people to hear this message. And so God tells Amos to deliver his message. And so in the first two verses of Amos, we, as we just read, we learn some things about Amos. I want us to notice first his trade, the prophet's trade. And that is that there's, there's nothing particularly impressive about the resume of Amos. Amos tells us in, in uh, chapter 7 and verse 14 that he wasn't the son of a prophet. He wasn't a prophet. Here was a guy who was a shepherd, a sheep breeder, a herdsman, it says in chapter 7 and verse 14, meaning that he, he breeded not only sheep but other uh, kinds of animals. So he was a, a shepherd and he was a, a fig tree, a sycamore tree farmer. Okay? And so here was a, a common, ordinary guy. And there's some encouragement in that for us, church. And the encouragement is that Amos's background should remind us of the kind of people that God often calls to do his work. Aren't we tempted to, to think and believe that God only calls people who have you know, some special abilities, some special talents, you know, some special uh, education that, that, uh, that qualifies them to deliver these messages like Amos was called to do. But that's just not so, right? You've read through your Bible. You, you read through the Bible and you find out that God uses a lot of very ordinary people, a lot of people from various different backgrounds. <laughs> and both Bible history and church history reveal this to us. Moses, of course, was, a, was an educated man. God called him and God used him. But he also used a, a humble shepherd like David. He used a, a priest like Jeremiah. He used common fishermen like Peter and James and John, right? Just common guys. And here Amos fits into the same type of category. Uh, you've heard the name D.L. Moody before, haven't you? A great evangelist, <coughs> died uh, just before the turn of the century. In 1899, he died. So most of his ministry was like between 1860 to about uh, 1899 in that time period. But, but D.L. Moody, he, I, I think he only had like a third grade education. Uh, he grew up uh, as a shoe salesman. And God uh, anointed this man and called this man. And, and they estimate over a million people were saved through the ministry of D.L. Moody. I can imagine that when D.L. Moody started preaching that, there were people who thought, what can this uneducated shoesman, shoes, shoe salesman teach us about God, about the Bible? But God used them. Uh, Billy Sunday, do you know that name? Uh, here was a guy who was a great evangelist, a, a former 
uh, professional baseball player. God called him, and he held these great evangelistic meetings. And, and I would imagine that there are people who wondered, what can this baseball player teach us about God? What can this guy tell us about the gospel? And yet God used him. God delights oftentimes of p- bypassing the wise and the prudent and sharing his power with babes, calling the, what the world would consider to be foolish, The foolishness of this world, God chooses oftentimes to confound the wise. And so church, this ought to encourage us because oftentimes we feel inadequate. Have you ever felt inadequate, right, when it comes to serving God, whenever, when it comes to delivering a message for God, delivering the gospel, talking to your neighbor about the gospel, you know? Why, why would I do something like that? Listen, uh, God uses just ordinary folks to do extraordinary things for God. And so that ought to encourage us as we think about the trade of the prophet. We also learn about his town. He was from this town called Tekoa, and uh, there's a little map there. It was, it was about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, about five miles from Bethlehem. Uh, there, the, the Dead Sea was off, what would, what would it be, to the, to the east. The Mediterranean Sea to the, off to the west. Uh, it was basically a land of valleys and ridges and, and, and steep cliffs. I mean, it was a, a rugged, arid type of a, a place where uh, Amos was called from. I also want to also tell you a little bit about the time period uh, of uh, Amos here, just to kind of give you a little reference point of the time in which Amos was preaching. Uh, this is from verse number one. It tells us that God called him during the days of Uzziah. Uzziah. We read about Uzziah in other places in the Bible. And so Uzziah was the king of Judah. And the king of Israel at the time was Jeroboam II. And so both of these, these kings were, were, uh, were um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, energetic kings. They were, they were men who, who did a lot. Um, the, the nation prospered under these kings. Um, both of them uh, reigned for quite a period of time. Uzziah reigned for 50 years. Uh, Jeroboam uh, II reigned for 40 years. And during this particular period of time, there's a couple noteworthy things that help us understand the the environment in which Amos was speaking. The first thing was the fact that there was uh, military superiority during this time. Israel and Judah, uh, under David, under Solomon, um, during the time of the judges, Right, some of that they 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 didn't have quite the same power as they were overtaken uh, by their enemies at times. But God would raise up judges. But but through the, the through the time after the judges into the kings David, as I said, and Solomon, and then, then into Rehoboam and into the 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 number the the many kings that followed them, the nation remained rather strong, and they were almost. Uh, would be considered, at least in that region, somewhat of a superpower. So they had military superiority, and they also had economic prosperity. Uh, both kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, were well off. Um, history, we read this in history, it, 
Uh, this is Kaiser who, who says this about this particular time frame. He says, So prosperous had they become that their wives were said to lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on their couches, dining on choice lambs, strumming away on their harps like David, and improvising on musical instruments, drinking wine by the bowlful, bowlful and using the finest lotions. <laughs> Can you... Can you picture that, right? This is how well off they were doing. That they were really at their zenith at this particular time. And what happened was the people thought because they were doing so well, because they, they had this superior military, because they were so well off financially, they saw this as God's blessing on them. They believed that they had God's favor. And of course, yes, God had favored them. God had blessed them, yes. But what they thought was, they thought that God was pleased with them because they could see the blessing of God. They could see how well off they were doing. And yet, God wasn't pleased with them at all. You know, this, this could, should kind of be somewhat of a wake-up call for for those of us who live in a country as blessed as we are. It really should. Uh, talk about military superiority. There's never been a military in the face of the, uh, face of the earth like the United States military. And I, look, I'm all for having a strong military like, like I would think you would be, right? I, I want to have a strong military. I, I want to, you know... I, I want to make sure that, that we can deal with our enemies. Uh, certainly, we're the, the richest society that's ever lived on the face of this earth. I mean, in many ways, the times that Amos was preaching was very similar to the conditions that we live in right now as Americans. we gotta, we got to keep that in the back of our head as we go through this. Not only was there a military superiority and, and economic prosperity, but there was also religious activity going on. People were religious. People were going to worship. They, in fact, uh, uh, Amos talks about that here. We'll, we'll see some of that as we kind of progress our way through the book. But, but they, were, they had adopted this sort of syncretism. You know what that is? <coughs> this is where they had syncretized their, their, uh, their worship of God with idol worship. They had adopted some of the worship of the pagans around them, and they would go to the altars of pagan gods and idols, and they would worship there, and then they would go worship God. Think about this. How, how much does this sound about sound like our day today, right? I mean, you hear Christianity talked about, you hear people talk about God. I mean, I, I know that it's not like it is like when, say, for example, after 9-11. Remember how everybody was rushing back to prayer? And what happened after about two or three weeks, right? Everybody rushed back to church to pray after 9-11, and you know what happened, right? It went back to normal, well, I think in about three or four weeks or so. Here's what happens. Life struggles often cause us to pray. And that's a good thing, isn't it? We, thank you. We, we go to the Lord and, we, and we, we get on our face and we pray, thanks, um, when times are bad. And what happens sometimes when times are good? 
just the opposite, right? When times are good, sometimes what we do is we, we forget God. We get comfortable in our surroundings. We get comfortable in our living. So oftentimes, life successes bring complacency. And what's going on in the northern kingdom is this very thing. They're flourishing politically, economically, militarily. And so what happened? Its leaders and its people turned away from God. And this is what often happens, church. This is what happens when when our own efforts appear to be accomplishing our goals. It, It feels like, well, everything's working out and we're successful and it just seems like all of our needs are met. It just seems like God must be blessing us. The question is, is, is God really pleased with it? Can God really be pleased with us as a nation? Was God really pleased with Israel as a nation? The answer is no. God is calling the people to put him at the center of their lives, not only in bad times, but in good times. Not only in bad times, but in good times. What do we do? Do we put God at the center of our lives in good times as we do in bad? Well, here's the prophet's task. His task was this. His task, as you see on the screen, was to cross the border. To, he, he's in Judah, in the southern kingdom, and God calls him to take these messages to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so this is what Amos does. He leaves his home in Tacoma. He leaves the, the herds behind, and he goes to Samaria. He goes to Israel where he begins to preach. And that brings us to my second point, and that is the pronouncements. And what we see here as we look at these pronouncements, it's here on the screen, is that God holds nations accountable. God holds nations accountable. We're going to see this as we go through uh, beginning in chapter 1 and verse number 3. Because what Amos does here is he begins with these pronouncements against six Gentile nations. He gives a survey of the nations located there around Israel. He says in verse 3, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing, verse number 3, Damascus, for three crimes, even four, because, and this is what we find, six times throughout this chapter and into chapter 2. We read the exact same words. Exact same words. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing, and you can fill in the blank, Damascus or Tyre, whoever it be, for three crimes even four, because, and he'll lay it out. So first, there's Damascus in verses 3 through 5. Damascus was located northeast of Israel. Damascus was the strongest and most uh, formidable enemy uh, uh, in Aram, uh, the city-state in that particular area. For nearly 100 years, they were one of Israel's greatest enemies. They were constantly dealing with the Syrians. And they were guilty of committing numerous brutal atrocities against the Israelites. And God was going to hold them accountable. God would himself wage war against 
the, uh, the Armenian, Armenians or the Syrians, he was going to destroy them. And history tells us that that's exactly what happened. God used the Assyrians as instruments of destruction to decimate these people, the people who lived in Damascus. Then, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, he then talks he, he makes this pronouncement against Gaza or the, or the Philistines, Philistia. They were located to the southwest of Israel. The Philistines, right? We read about the Philistines all throughout the Old Testament. This is another longtime enemy of Israel. And Amos calls out their sin of, of capturing and entire towns and villages for the purpose of turning a prophet as they sold the captives into slavery. That's what we read. I'm not taking the time to, to read all this. I'm, I'm recapping it for you. But this is what they had done. They would go in and they would conquer a city for the, just for the purpose of now having some slaves they could sell. That's what they were doing. And church, God took notice of that. God doesn't turn a blind eye to this kind of thing. If you recently saw uh, The Sound of Freedom, how many of you have you've seen that, that film that just came out? It talks about uh, the, the sex trade, right? The, the, the sex slaves, uh, how children have been turned into slaves. And, you know, you watch that film and you think, how can this be happening? Where, and I, I would imagine there are people who think, where's God in all this? Listen, listen. God knows what's going on. God knows exactly what's going on. And God judges sin 10 times out of 10, church. God's going to make everything. He's, he's going to judge all the wrongs. He's going to make all the wrongs right. God's going to do that. And we see this played out right here 2,700 years ago. God was like, Gaza, Felicia, I know what you've been doing. I've seen what you're doing. And I'm going to hold you accountable for this. They would not go unpunished. We shouldn't think for a minute that God doesn't see or know what is going on in our world. You see what's going on in Ukraine, right? Uh, People being killed, caught up in this war. God sees it all. He knows what is going on. And he always has the last word. He does hold nations accountable. He then talks to Tyre about Tyre. And this is chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. They were located there, as you can see it on the screen, uh, to the uh, the northwest of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean. The Phoenicians were seafaring people, right? Uh, Their economy depended on their importing and exporting of goods, including, again, humans. These people were slave traders. They were guilty of selling their friends, the Edomites, people they had made a peace treaty with. But when they conquered them, again, for the purpose of exporting them, turning them into slaves. Again, God took notice. God held them accountable. He used the Assyrians and the Babylonians sometime later to punish them. The next pronouncement is against the nation of Edom. This is chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. They were located to the southeast of Israel. They were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, right? Israel's brother. These are, these are brothers. These should be people who, who would have a good relationship with Israel, but instead 
said they ignored their family ties and instead they hated Israel and they were continually pursuing Israel with the sword. And this is what Amos, he declares this. God was taking note of that. God would hold them accountable. And Amos says that God would devastate the Enemites, sending down fire upon them as enemies would come and torch their land and their cities. And that's exactly what later happened. And then we see the pronouncement against the final two, Ammon and Moab. Both of these were descendants of Lot. You'll remember after Sodom and Gomorrah were, were destroyed and Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. You remember what happened uh, with Lot's daughters and, and the offspring of that. Well, that's, that's these two nations, Ammon and Moab, both descendants of Lot. The Ammonites were as brutal as any of the nations. They were guilty of ripping open defenseless pregnant women and killing their unborn children. Church, this was 2,700 years ago. We we watch the news and we think, how can people be this brutal? Look, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Sin is a terrible thing. And and sin, uh, I mean, you look at how humans have treated one another since Cain and Abel. The Ammonites were as brutal as they came. The Moabites were guilty of burning the bones of an Edomite king. You think, well, what's the big deal about that? God took notice of that. God held them accountable for that. It was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who laid waste to Moab once and for all in 582 BC. They're gone. No Moabites left. There's not a trace. God put an end to them. Why? Because of their abominations, because of their wickedness, God held them accountable. Here's what we need to learn from this, church. God observes the actions of nations. When you're watching the news and you're wondering what's going on in our world, God's watching the news. (laughs) He sees it. He knows all about it. God has the power over all the nations, and he holds them accountable for their behavior, especially when they transgress accepted military norms. And that's what we find here in these pronouncements. They were abusing people of other countries by torture and humiliation, and that stands as an affront to God's expectations for humanity. And so God said he would hold their nations and their leaders accountable. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse number 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people, including our nation. Israel, upon hearing these pronouncements, okay, we have to put ourselves in the setting. Amos comes to Samaria and he starts giving these messages. God's going to destroy the Ammonites. He's going to destroy the Moabites, the Philistines. God's going to destroy the Syrians. What do you think the Israelites were thinking? (laughs) Bravo! Bravo! Yeah! Keep That's good preaching, Amos. You just keep that preaching up, man. You have to believe, man, that, that there, there, was, 
There was rejoicing in the streets. God was going to finally bring the hammer down on their enemies. They would have been elated. But the lion isn't finished roaring yet. And so here's what happens. God, God has identified these nations, and if you look on a map, and, you, and I've, I've put it on the slide for you, these nations form a circle and almost like an X as you, as you follow the way that, that Amos pronounced these. If you follow, and I did it on one of those earlier slides, it makes an X. God's zooming in. The next pronouncement he makes is against Judah. This is chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 and following down there. See, God's people weren't off the hook. They would have been excited to hear about all the judgment coming against the Gentiles, but God's people weren't off the hook. There's no get-out-of-jail-free card for God's people. Judah was guilty too. In fact, church, listen, their crimes were worse. They were worse. What was their crime? Look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Here's what their crime was. They rejected the Lord's instruction. That's what they did. Why was that worse? Here's why it was worse. They knew God. They had his word. And they rebelled. They went their own way. And what Amos says about Judah, he says, God's going to hold them accountable too. This is, this is Amos's nation. He's, t- he's from Judah. God is going to hold my nation ad- accountable too. He says, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, judgment always begins at the house of the Lord. And in Jerusalem was where the house of the Lord was. And Judah's making the point. God's going to judge his people too. See, these nations weren't selected at random. Ratherly, ratherly, they were selected because they encircle Israel. Each time Amos would bring up another nation, including Judah, the Israelites would say, Amen. But every time they said, Amen, it was as if they were signing their names to their own judgment decree. It was almost as if they were tightening the loose imperceptibly around their own necks, Why? Because they were guilty of all the same things. And so Amos then gives this pronouncement against Israel. This is chapter 2, beginning in verse number 6. And these pronouncements against these other nations, as I've said, it, it put Judah and Israel right in the crosshairs. All these pronouncements, all these nations, that was all for God to say, My message is to you. Israel was the one who was in the crosshairs. And so here's what what Amos does. He begins by, by in verses uh, 6 through 8 of chapter 2, he begins by describing their present condition. And that was, there, there was corruption. And there were three main sins that they were guilty of. The first one was injustice. In verses 6 and 7, Amos Amos' big uh, concern here was their disregard for one another, their disregard for, for one another as God's people. 
Remember, Israel had a long history of oppression. They had been oppressed for 400 years. They were slaves in Egypt. And what, what Amos points out here, he points out that, that, that now they are doing the very thing. They are making slaves of their own people. It says in verse number six, they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. It's like if they couldn't pay for a pair of sandals, the poor were, uh, were neither forgiven nor assisted. Instead, they were trampled like the dust of the earth. It says in verse 7, they trampled the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. These who had been delivered from slavery as a nation, here they're making slaves out of their own people for one reason. You know what the reason was? Greed. It was all about greed. And so God points out their injustice. This, the second sin was immorality. It says in verse 7, a man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl profaning his holy name. And this is a picture of a, a father and a son taking advantage of an Israelite maiden who worked for their family who was in need of a job uh, and in a position to be taken advantage of. And this is what was happening. If she failed to comply with them in their sexual immorality and abuse, she would lose her job. And they were poor, and she had to work. They needed work. And so they were taking advantage of their own people. The irony is that the sexual perversion and promiscuity that had polluted the promised land before Israel entered it, here they're, they're participating in the very thing that caused God to wipe out the Canaanites. In, in, in way, making way for them to come into the land. When the Lord reminded them in Leviticus 18 of this, that, that he was driving them out because of their sexual evils, he wasn't giving them an idle reminder. He was making an important point. If they polluted themselves with such sins as the Canaanites had done, he would drive them out of the land just as he had driven the Canaanites out of the land. This was bad. But to make matters worse, they were guilty of a third sin, and that in verse number 8 is idolatry. Chapter 2 and verse 8. Amos says that the elites were using the coats that they had taken from the poor and, and those who owed them money, right? They were taking those coats and they were lying on them as they would worship at pagan altars. And they were getting drunk in the house of God. It was just, it was, it was a scene of idol worship. And at times, they would bring that idol worship right into the house of God, somehow in their mind thinking that God would somehow be pleased with them. God had blessed them so much. Certainly, all this must be okay with God, but they were so badly mistaken. Well, Amos begins to describe, then he turns, this is chapter 2 and verse number 9. He then turns his attention to remind them of what God had been doing for them. He talks about their past, their past. In verses 9 through 12, he reminds them that God had destroyed their enemies. That God had destroyed entire populations of people, the Canaanites, when Joshua led them into Canaan. And that it included the Amorites, 
who he likens, Amos likens to cedar trees for their great strength. He's like, these were a strong people, and God wiped them out because of their sin, because of their debauchery, because of how they treated other human beings. It was God who did that for them. And in verse number 10, Amos, this is chapter 2 and verse 10, Amos reminds them that, that it was God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. 400 years in slavery. And it was God who brought them out with a strong hand out of Egypt. And he cared for them for 40 years in the wilderness. He spoke to them through prophets, such as Moses giving the law, and through numerous other prophets, the likes of Samuel and Elijah and Elisha, Elisha and many others. He raised up dedicated service. Uh, 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 Amos mentions the Nazarites. These were people who were examples of devotion to God. They had all of these privileges, all of these blessings. And what did they do? Here's what they did. They rebelled against God. Rather than honoring God, rather than living in a way that pleased God, they went about rebelling from God and living their own way. They forgot that everything they had, church, was because of the grace and the goodness of God. They forgot that everything they had was because of the grace and the goodness of God. Wow. You see why it's really important for us to never forget that all the blessings, everything that we could point to in our life, it's all from the grace and the goodness of God. As soon as we start forgetting that, we're, we're, we're taking steps to going our own way. God had chosen Israel to be recipients of his covenant, his protection, his care. But the people's choices turned their hearts away from God. And now the lion roars. Verse number 13 Look at these words. This is chapter 2 and verse 13. Amos says, speaking God's message, God says, look, I am about to crush you in your place. Those are scary words. Their past was one of salvation and preservation. Their present was one of corruption. And so what Amos now says and describes, he describes their future and he describes a future of destruction that was coming. God was warning them that judgment was coming. He wanted them to know. Here were people who were living in an apparent time of prosperity. The last thing they wanted to hear was a message about judgment. But when you read how Amos describes this, if you read, this is chapter 2, verse 14, 15, and 16. Here's what Amos describes. He, just, he says, God is going to crush you, and it's going to happen so quickly, you're not going to be able to get away. We all have seen what happened in Maui last week. 
how quickly those fires came in. It, it kind of blows my mind. Does it blow your mind? How a fire could spread that quickly and trap people like that. And I mean, they're saying that by the time they're done counting bodies, it'll be hundreds of people. What a terrible, terrible thing. And it, kind of like Amos is describing something like this, like when God's judgment is going to come on, he's saying to the Israelites, when God's judgment is going to come, you're, the fastest people among you will not be able to run fast enough. He says the, the warriors, the, the great warriors, they're not going to be able to defend themselves. When this happens, there will be no way to resist it. There will be no way to avoid it. And the truth is, as you, as you look at history, Assyria would invade Israel and the nation as, as we see it through history. The, the nation would be no more until 1948. They were taken into exile. All of that. And here's God, God is just warning them. He sends Amos to declare this to them. And I, I think most of the commentators agree that chapter 3 and verse 2 can be seen as the, the focal statement of the, the whole prophetic message. Look at chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, he says this, it's there on the screen. I have known you, only you, out of all the clans of, their, of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. See, the fact that we're God's people doesn't give us somehow a pass. Just because we've received all the blessings and the goodness of God, it doesn't give us a pass that we can just think that we can go on in sin without any consequences. Amos is there saying, there's consequences for this. Why? Because God hates sin, especially when it defiles his people, and the, the reality of it is, church, that we too, as the American church, we are in danger, if it hasn't happened already, we are in danger of falling asleep in the comfort of the privileges of our salvation. We are in danger of falling asleep in the comfort of, of the pleasures that we enjoy in this nation. We are in danger of falling asleep. We are in danger of God pouring out his judgment in the same way as he did these people on us. Well, Amos then gives two principles in chapter 3. This is verses 3 through 8. And the, the truth here is that God does what he does on purpose and for a purpose. God does what he does on purpose and for a purpose. All of all, what is happening, the, the message that Amos is proclaiming, this wasn't an accident. God had a purpose in all of this, and he would work on purpose. So he gives these principles that help us to understand this. The first principle is the principle of cause and effect. This is in verses 3 through 6. And, and here's what this principle states. God demands that actions result in consequences. Actions result in consequences. You know, God has instilled this in creation, right? Uh, Paul attests to this principle in Galatians 6, 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also, also reap. Uh, Newton's third law of motion, right, affirms this observation stating for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, right? 
Well, this is what Amos lays out here in these verses. In verse number 3, he, he, well, he gives these seven questions from verses 3 down to verse number 8. But he's, he's, he's helping us recognize the, this principle of cause and effect. In verse number 3, he says, Can two walk together without uh, agreeing to meet? There's a cause and effect relationship between two people. In verse 4, he, he gives a second and third question that turns our attention to the hunting practices of a lion. Does a, a lion roar in the forest and has, when it has no prey? Does a young lion growl from its lair unless it has captured something? In verse number five, Amos gives a fourth and fifth question that addresses the, the nature of traps. He says, does a bird land in a trap on the ground if there is no bait for it? Does a trap spring from the ground when it has caught nothing? And the answer to all these questions is what? No. No. Apparently what's going on here is the Israelites were counting on God to do for them what he had done for David. Right? To, to protect them. But they were mistaken. There would be no escape. There would be no deliverance for Israel. Israel should not expect to be delivered from the consequences of their sin. And church, church, nor should we. Nor should we. In verse 6, Amos gives a sixth question, has an obvious answer too. If a trumpet is blown in a city, Aren't the people afraid? If a disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? Who, who wouldn't be frightened to hear the watchman's sound of the trumpet, right? Uh, what, the watchman would alert the city. There's an aggressor coming. There's an army coming. That, would be a, that was a scary thing. When you heard the watchman's trumpet, it meant trouble's coming. And when a city was sieged, often when a city was sieged, the city would fall. It was just a matter of time. People were going to die. People were going to starve to death. It was going to be ugly. It was going to be brutal. That's what happened when the trumpet was blown in a city. People got afraid. And what Amos is trying to say here, if a disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? What he's saying to Israel is, listen, when this thing happens, don't wonder how it happened. Don't wonder Who's responsible? This is the lion roaring. This, is, this will be God who will cause the judgment to fall. In verses 7 through 8, he gives a final question revealing the cause of the calamity would be the Lord. He says, Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who will not fear? prophesy the Assyrians may attack but they will be instruments of God's wrath upon the people well that's the principle of cause and effect the second principle is the principle of justice and mercy and the principle of justice and mercy states that God desires for people to repent rather than perish Praise God for that, right? I mean, church, listen. God sends Amos to warn them. What, what is God hoping for by sending Amos to them with this message? What, what is God hoping for? Is he, is he wringing his hands? He's just, he can't wait to, 
to pour this out on his people. No. What he's hoping is that they will do what Nineveh would do when Jonah, would, when Jonah went to Nineveh and preached against the city and they repented. That's what he's hoping for. He's hoping the people will repent. You see, judgment is not God's default setting when it comes to humanity. The Lord never brings down judgment upon people without first sending a word of warning to them. But God is a just God. And so the Lord roared out his judgment on Israel, yet in his mercy he sends Amos to warn them. And so we could listen, as we go through the book of Amos, here's what we should be hearing. This is tough love. That's what this is. The words that Amos speaks to Israel, it's tough love, man. These are, these are hard words for them to hear. But this is the love and the mercy of God sending a message of warning to them, hoping that they will respond. God wants them to respond. Amos speaks God's truth in love. But what we'll see is that Israel has become so steeped in the mire of their sin, they don't respond. And yet, here Amos gives them a strong message. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9 says, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I believe that the Bible is true. I, I believe that God can't lie. Do you? I believe that. This is how simple I approach Bible study. I believe that God exists. I believe that God can't lie, and so I believe that what God says is true. So if the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, you know what I believe? I believe God doesn't want anybody to perish, like genuinely. I believe that God hasn't picked and chosen, and he said, okay, you're going to be saved, and you're not going to be saved. I believe that God wants everyone to be saved, genuinely. He loves every person. He wants everyone to be saved. And God is giving a time of grace. We are in a time of grace. And the message is being held. The gospel goes out. And the same way, this was a time of grace for the people of Israel. The message had gone out. And God would give them time, almost 40 years for them to respond. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He waited 120 years before the great flood. Today he's waited several thousand years before the final judgment will come upon the earth, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It will come, church. It will come. And it will come as suddenly as it came upon Israel. Amos 3.8 a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. God wants to forgive sin. God wants to save man. He did everything possible to, to, to forgive man. He sent his son to the cross. All there is for man to do is to respond to God's warning and to turn from our sin and to turn to him. And so, church, tonight, I want us to close with our next steps. What do we do with this? 
What next step do you need to take? Number one, do you need to take this next step? Number one, I will listen as God speaks to me through his word. Amos goes to Israel to deliver this message. They liked the first part of the message. It was when he started stepping on their toes that wasn't so nice. And sometimes when we, when we get into the Word of God, sometimes we, we, we pick and choose what we, what we want to hear and what we don't want to hear. And what we ought to do is we ought to look to the Word of God and allow the Word of God as a mirror to show us what's going on in our own heart and life and listen and respond to that. So do you need to take next step number one? I will listen as God speaks to me through his word. Next step number two, I will put God in the center of my life and live a life that pleases him in good times and bad. See, this is where Israel went off the rails. Times were good and they forgot God. Times were good and they they went their own way. They did their own thing. Church, Next step, number two, I will put God in the center of my life. I'll put him on the throne of my life, and I will live a life by his grace, with his help, that pleases him in good times as well as bad. Step number three, I will do what God tells me to do, no matter how inadequate I may feel or how unpopular it may be. Amos, this wasn't a very popular guy in Israel, I can assure you of that. Pretty inadequate, inadequate guy in his own perception, in his own mind. Yet he just, he knew what God wanted him to do and he did it. Is that the next step you need to take? What does God want you to do? What has he been telling you to do? Do you feel inadequate? We'll do it anyway. Is it unpopular? Well, do it anyway. Be an Amos. Do what God wants you to do.